0: us in your own image and redeemed us through your son Jesus Christ look with compassion on the whole human family take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts break down the walls that separate us unite us in bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth that in your good time all nations and races may serve you in harmony around your heavenly throne through Jesus Christ our Lord Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in Romans, and we are continuing our study of Romans chapter 9. And you may recall that last week I mentioned the fact that I think we are embarking on a study of the most difficult section of not just the New Testament or this book, but really the most difficult section in the Bible. It is difficult for us to comprehend why God functions in this way or acts in this way, and it gives rise to a great many anxieties on the part of people. And uh, over the course of the past week, I've had several of you come up and ask me numerous questions uh, about the whole doctrine of election, and you've expressed your concern and worry about it. And so what I want to do today is sort of just take a step back, and I want us to try and think clearly through this whole section of Scripture and this whole doctrine. I say think clearly because the reality is we live in a very emotive age. Um, Our initial reaction is not to think through issues, but rather to feel through issues. Um, The question is not, Um, do I think this is right or do I think this is wrong? The real question is, does it work for me? And I want to suggest to you that that is not necessarily a Christian approach to life or to scripture. Uh, We are told that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. And so there are times when how we feel is really irrelevant. So today we're going to try to think through a very difficult issue. And how I wanna do that is just go ahead and read through the entirety of Romans chapter nine, and then sort of go back. Some of this you have heard, but sometimes when we take the text apart verse by verse, it's so detailed that we forget the entire picture and i want to give you a sort of comprehensive picture of this and a comprehensive understanding and hopefully by the end you'll have a better understanding of what i think paul is teaching and why it's important for our lives when paul deals with the doctrine of election in romans chapter 9 he deals with two things in particular one he deals with the fact of election we touched on that last week the fact of election And then he deals with the necessity of election. So I want to deal with those two things today, the fact of election and the necessity of election. And I say the fact of election because immediately what that means is that it does not matter how we feel about this. It's a fact. There are many things in life that we don't like, but that doesn't change the fact of them. All right. So let's just go ahead and read through Romans chapter nine, the entire chapter, hold your questions. If we have time at the end, I'll do my best to answer them. And if not, well, then that's good for me. (sighs) But Romans chapter nine, beginning at verse one, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Now as we begin this discussion about election, Paul is framing the discussion right there. And what he is reminding us is that he's answering that charge that God has not been true to his promise that the Jews were going to be his chosen race, his chosen people, because it appears that a large number of them have actually rejected Christ. They have rejected the gospel. So he's putting this whole doctrine of election within the context of that question. Has God forsaken his people? And Paul's answer, of course, is no, he has not. And that's what he goes on to say in verse, the very next verse, verses six and following. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, You will say to me then, this is where you see the logic of Paul, because people are saying that, well, that's not fair, that that just doesn't seem right. Paul anticipates that objection and here's how he replies. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea those who were not my people I will call my people and her who has not beloved I will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living God And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it is based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion as the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's the ninth chapter. Let's go back and unpack some of this so that we can perhaps understand what Paul is teaching here. And the proper place to begin really, a discussion about election, or really folks, any doctrine, is with the scriptures themselves. That is the proper place. Because every single one of us, no matter who we are, we live according to some authority. We're living under some authority. Now, as Christians, we should be living under the authority of the Word of God. But if you're not living under the authority of the Word of God, you're living under some authority. Now, the reason why we should live under the authority of God is because it's the only means by which you and I can come to know God. I mean that's how paul begins this book you understand in romans chapter one he talks about revelation he talks about the fact fact that mankind is under the judgment of god because god has made himself known you and i are creatures we're finite there are many things about the universe the cosmos that we do not understand that we do not comprehend As Paul describes it here in Romans, he says, we see through a glass dimly or darkly. The only way that you and I, mere creatures, finite creatures, can ever hope to have a relationship with God, who is infinite, is if God condescends to make himself known to us. Now that's just logic. And that is exactly what Paul says God has done. God has made himself known to his creation, otherwise he would be the deus absconditus, the hidden God. But he has chosen not to keep himself hidden from us, he has made himself known and he's done that in three ways in particular. The first way he has done that, Paul says, is in general revelation. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter one. God has made himself known in the things that have been made. Look at the created order. Look at the fact that the creation is ordered. This is one of the things that Albert Einstein said back in the 1920s. He said, the great mystery of the universe is that it is comprehensible. It makes sense, we can study it. It's governed by laws and regularities. Well, if we live in a universe that is governed by laws and regularities, we know from our own experience that in order to have laws, there has to be a what? A lawgiver. You know, it's very interesting. We refer to DNA as a code. And those who have studied this thing, uh, this, this sort of thing, they will tell you that your DNA is actually a code, like a computer code. Now, we also know from our experience, don't we, that if there is a code, if there is a language, there has to be a mind behind that language. Computer code just doesn't spring out of the thin air, there is a programmer behind it. Well, if that which is within you, which, which makes you up, your, your DNA code which defines who you are, if that is in fact a language, there has to be a mind behind it. So Paul would say that deep down from the, from the, the largest scale, the cosmos itself down to the most minute, the cellular level, one of the things that we recognize is that there is a mind behind the universe. So God has made himself known in the things that have been made. Now, that doesn't tell us what kind of a God exists, it simply tells us that a God exists. You cannot tell what God is like simply by looking at the natural order of things, because the same natural order that contains beautiful things like sunsets over the Ashley River is also the same created order that has things like earthquakes and typhoons and hurricanes that cause untold misery. So while the created order can tell us that there is a God, we need another kind of revelation, beyond general revelation, to tell us what that God is like. And we get that special revelation in two ways. One, the supreme way, is in the person of Jesus Christ. God not only shows us that he exists in the things that have been made, he shows us what he is like in becoming flesh and walking among us. You may recall that toward the end of his ministry, Jesus was talking to his disciples and one of them, Thomas came up to him and he said, Lord, show us the Father and that's going to be enough for us. You remember that? Show us the Father. If you, if you talk about the Father and, and, and you, you, you commune with the Father, show us the Father. And it'll be a whole lot easier for us. And do you remember what Jesus' response was to Thomas? He said, how much longer must I be with you? If you have seen me, you have seen the father. In other words, you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus Christ. So you can know that there is a God in the created order in general revelation, but you only come to know what that God is like through special revelation, not general, but special revelation, and the supreme form of special revelation is his son. God taking on human flesh, walking among us, that we might behold his glory, as the opening chapter of John says. Now, of course, Jesus walked on this earth for a period. It was a finite period. He was only here for about 33 years. And for three of those years he was active in ministry and there were those who had the privilege of knowing him, of seeing him, of experiencing his miracles. And many of us think to ourselves, well I wish I had had that example. I wish I had had that privilege. Well the apostles understand, understood that they had a rare privilege that most people did not have. And so they undertook, you see, to write down the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And that's what the gospels are all about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the apostles' account of the life of Jesus. And John in his gospel toward the end said that Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book, but these are written so that what? you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John's saying, we understand that we had the privilege of walking with Jesus, he's now ascended, returned to the Father until he comes back in glory. And that means that succeeding generations are not going to have the same kind of privilege that we have, but we're gonna write it down and in such a way that in reading this, you may actually come yourself to have a personal relationship with him. So from the earliest days, the church has always regarded the words of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments, as God's revelation, as God making Himself known to us. And so we regard the Bible as unique among the works of literature. It is is not just the words of men, it is the word of the Lord. And we give lip service to this every Sunday. We may have a reading from the the book of the prophet Isaiah, and that's how we introduce it. We'll say the first lesson is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, but then when we get to the end, we don't say this is the word of Isaiah, thanks be to God. We say what? This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, because we believe, and this is what the church has taught for 2,000 years, that the people... The prophets, the apostles, were carried along by God the Holy Spirit. So they wrote in their own style, they wrote in their own time, but what they ultimately produced was not merely their words but the words of the Lord himself. It is the means by which God speaks to us. Now, I say all of that because it's important. Some people might say, well, why do we even wanna study the doctrine of election? It's so troubling. Let's just stick with John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. That's, whole much, that's a whole lot nicer and a whole lot better. Well, one of the reasons why we study this is because whether we like it or not, comes back to thinking through these issues, whether we like it or not, this is the teaching of Scripture. And Scripture is God's self-revelation. And so as believers who are called to live under the authority of Scripture, we have no choice but to study it, and do our best to understand it, whether we like it or not. So the Bible is authoritative for our lives. Now, you've heard me say this before, I think there are basically three views when it comes to the Bible. There is the classic view, namely that the Bible is the word of the Lord, and that it contains all things necessary to salvation. That's what we give lip service to at least every Sunday. The second view, which became very popular um, in the 18th century and up through the 20th century in many critical circles, was that the Bible is not the word of God. You know, the 18th century was the age of reason. Uh, They believed that God made himself known in the created order, that's what the deists believed, that God was like a great clockmaker, but that God does not reveal himself in any special or specific way. Jesus may have been a great prophet, a great moral teacher, but he was not the son of God. And so what people of that stripe would argue is that the Bible is not the Word of God but rather the words of men about God. Now obviously that is contrary to the Christian perspective. That's a, that's a secular approach to the Bible. That, that's studying the Bible as literature but not as a divine revelation. Now, many people in the church found that troubling, and so they tried to adopt a third perspective, and that is that the Bible is the words of men and the words of God, and you gotta turn it over to the scholars to tell you which one is which. And the problem with that, of course, is that we quickly discovered that the scholars didn't agree. So I would argue that as Christians, as believers, as those who really do have a relationship with Christ, when it comes to the Scriptures, the only viable option for us is to adopt the view that this is, in fact, the Word of God, and that even though there are some parts of it that we don't understand, this is why I've said to you before, it's like taking an aspirin. If you've got a headache and you go to the medicine cabinet and you take an aspirin, the one thing you don't do with an aspirin is chew it. Why? Because it's bitter. What do you do with an aspirin? You swallow it whole. What I want to suggest to you is that there are some parts of Scripture that you and I are going to struggle with, but rather than chew on them and find that they only taste bitter to us, perhaps the best thing for us to do is to trust God, who has proven himself to be gracious and merciful, to trust God and to swallow these things whole, hoping that by believing in them, we will eventually come to understand them. The Latin is fetus corns intellectum, It means faith seeking understanding. See, we wanna do it the other way around. I'm not gonna believe it unless I can understand it. And God says, that's not the way it works. I've given you enough evidence to believe in me, but on the other things, you're going to have to take them by faith. So we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. Some circles like to describe this as verbal plenary inspiration. But what it basically means is that the scriptures themselves are in fact the word of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter three. He says, all scripture is phaeponeustos, that is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be complete for every good work. So the church has taught that the Scriptures are the Word of God. And I want you to understand this is true for all of the denominations that come out of the Reformation, at least. Certainly true for Anglicans. In our own 39 articles, we have this statement. There are two articles that deal with Scripture. Article number six of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures, it says this. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary for salvation. Did you hear that? Holy scriptures contain all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith. Article 20, just a few pages later in the prayer book, says this, the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church is a witness and keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same, ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. Now that's in our own Book of Common Prayer. And what is it declaring? That the scriptures are the word of God. They contain all things necessary to salvation. If it can't be proved by scripture, it doesn't have to be believed as an article of the faith. It may be somebody's pious opinion, but you're not required to believe it. On the other hand, if it is in the scriptures, it must be believed as an article of the faith. Now, Why am I doing all of that? Talking about the scriptures, talking about authority. Because of that very point, that if it is taught in scripture, whether we find it difficult, whether we find it troubling, is beside the point. We as believers, living under the authority of the word of God, have a responsibility to believe it. Even to believe those things that we cannot understand. So let's talk about the doctrine of election. Let's talk, as Paul does, about the fact of election. Set aside the idea that you find it troubling. Set aside the fact that you find it difficult. Let's just talk about whether or not it's actually taught in scripture. And if it is, and we are believers, and we live under the word of God, then we have an obligation to do what? To swallow it whole. To embrace it. Now. Paul pretty clearly makes the argument that the doctrine of election is just a fact. This is the way that God has worked in history. He talks first about Abraham, the calling of Abraham. That happened back in Genesis. God called Abraham. This is how God began this whole process of salvation by which he was going to redeem the world. He chose a man named Abraham. If you were in the rector's forum on Sunday, we were talking about Israel and all of that. We talked a little bit about this. God called Abraham and from Abraham, he called a family. And from this family, he called a nation. And from this nation would ultimately come the savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Now what paul asks is why did god start with abraham why didn't he start with somebody else there, there were lots of people living on the face of the earth at that time but god decides to start with this man abraham well you might say well there must have been something in abraham that god took note of there must have been something extraordinary about Abraham. He must have been a, an extremely intelligent man or an extremely righteous man or an enlightened man. Or There must have been something that God said, ah, now there's somebody that I can work with. <laughs> but actually, Paul says that's not the case. If you go back and you look at the story of Abraham, when God called Abraham, where was he? He was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans in ancient Mesopotamia. And he was an idol worshiper. He didn't know anything about God. He was not living a righteous life. God simply chose Abraham, and not because of anything that Abraham had done, simply because it pleased God to do so. Now, that does not mean that God didn't have a reason for choosing Abraham. It just means that if he did, we don't know what it is. and God chose to work through Abraham. Now, somebody might argue, Paul says, well, you gotta start somewhere. So so maybe God just, you know, closed his eyes and pointed and well, the lot fell to Abraham and so that's what he decided to do. But Paul says, but it wasn't only the calling of Abraham, it was also the calling of Isaac, Abraham's son. You know, Abraham had two sons. And Isaac was not the eldest. He had another son, didn't he? No, Ishmael. Ishmael, who was the son of Abraham and his slave girl, Hagar. When Abraham and Sarah couldn't conceive a child and couldn't produce an heir, and that was so important in the ancient world, Sarah actually made the suggestion that he go and have relations with her slave girl and produce an heir by which they could have a family. And so Abraham did. And they did have a child. And Sarah didn't like the child after all. It was her idea, but when she thought about it this is not a great idea at all because all of a sudden Abraham's giving all this attention to another woman this is a perfect example of man trying to resolve their own dilemmas so actually there was an elder son but God said no your descendants will come through a promised son and that promised son as we know is Isaac so God chose Isaac, what? Over Ishmael. Now, Paul anticipates the next objection. The next objection is, well, okay. But that's because Isaac was a pure-blooded Jew. All right? I mean, Hagar was a slave woman and she was a pagan. But God chose a pure-blooded Jew, Abraham and Sarah's heir. Well, Paul says, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but let's not forget the fact that there were two sons from that next marriage. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Both of them are, quote, pure blooded Jews. And furthermore, Esau is the eldest, remember? They were twins. But according to the law of the day, the first child to come out of the mother's womb is the eldest and inherits the estate. And we're told that Esau was the firstborn, Jacob was the secondborn, and yet God declared that he was going to choose Jacob to reign over Esau. For Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He quotes that from the Old Testament. Now this is Paul's way of saying that in all three cases, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these great, pro, these, these, these great progenitors of the faith, every single one of them was chosen, chosen, and, and God chose them, why? Because it pleased him to do so. And it's not just here in the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that we see this doctrine of election. We see it all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Old Testament. The calling of Israel to be a chosen people. You've heard me quote this before. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, God asks the rhetorical question, why did I choose you? It was not because you were the most numerous of all the peoples of the earth. You were not as great as the Egyptians. I chose you because I set my affection on you. Why did God set his affection upon the Jews as opposed to any other people in the earth? We don't know, it just pleased him to do so. So the calling of the patriarchs, the calling of the nation. How about the calling of David? I mentioned on Sunday that the Davidic dynasty is regarded by Jews as the high point of their history. David is regarded as the great king it was to David that God made the promise that one of his heirs would sit on his throne and establish a kingdom in a world that would be what? Without end, an eternal kingdom. David is described as a man after God's own heart. How was it that David came to be the king of Israel? You understand that Israel had a king, and that king's name was what? Saul. It should have been one of Saul's descendants who should have reigned on the throne. And yet that was not the case. Saul had descendants, plenty of them. But they don't reign on the throne, why? Because God chose David. And it's particularly interesting how God chose David. Keep your finger there in Romans and flip back for a moment to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Chapter 15 talks about God rejecting Saul. Saul had engaged in forbidden practices and as a result, God decides that he's going to reject him as king. And 1 Samuel chapter 16 tells the story of the calling of the new king. Then the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him? Samuel's a prophet. I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Jesse of Bethlehem. This is why Bethlehem is called the city of David, incidentally. I want you to go, fill your horn with oil, go to the home of Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Note that language. I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Notice that it's God's taking the initiative here. It's God constantly taking the action. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to to sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, what is interesting here is God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. And he said, one, The king is going to be one of the sons of Jesse. And so he talks to Jesse and he says, I, I need to see your sons. This is what the Lord has chosen. And so, what does Jesse do? He has all of his sons, and he has all these boys pass before the prophet. And he has them go from the eldest to the youngest. And the first one passes. And the first thing that Samuel says is, oh, this has got to be the one. Look at him, he's, he's intelligent, he's strong, he's a leader among his brothers. That's got to be the one. And Samuel says, no, that's, that's not the one. Well, get the next boy, all right? The next boy comes in. He's not as impressive as the elder brother, but he's impressive too. And the Lord says, no. And we're told that all of these sons pass through and Jesse shrugs his shoulders and said, well, I don't know. Look at how the story continues. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he replies, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. You understand that was a lowly job. He's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome, and the Lord said, arise, anoint, for he is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Why did God choose David, the youngest? That's not the way it's supposed to work. Why did he choose David? Because it pleased him to choose David. The other brothers were impressive as well, but God chose the youngest. How about the calling closer to home of the disciples? The Lord called 12 disciples. Why did he choose them? Why Peter? <laughs> because Peter was great. I mean we have seen on numerous occasions how Peter was afflicted with foot and mouth disease over and over again he said the wrong thing he got himself into trouble on more than one occasion Jesus just wanted I think to wring his neck how much longer must I be with you Peter get thee behind me Satan why did God choose Peter or James or John or Andrew or any of the rest. It's not because they were great. It's not because they were intelligent. It's because Christ chose them for reasons that were secret to them and reasons that are secret to us. Of all the people living there in Galilee, he chose these men. And he makes it very clear in John chapter 15 that they didn't choose him. In other words, they weren't men who'd gone out and they'd heard you know, Jesus preached and teach and they became these followers, you know, like there's some people that follow the Grateful Dead. You know, the, you know they just, just follow them wherever they go, that sort of thing. They do that with modern artists today as well. But Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I anointed you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So we need to understand that whether we like it or not, this is the word of God and the word of God is clear, election is everywhere. God chooses all sorts of people. He chooses Abraham, not because Abraham had done anything. He chose Isaac, he chose Jacob, he chose the people. He chose David, he chose the 12. And it may very well be that God has chosen you. And if he's chosen you, it's not because of anything that you've done. (laughs) It's in spite of the fact that you have done nothing. So that's the fact of election. We see this being taught everywhere in scripture. Now what I wanna turn to is the necessity of election. It's not only a fact, but I wanna suggest to you it is a necessity. Why is it a necessity? It is a necessity because of our human condition. I have introduced the idea of federal theology before, but it's something that we should all be able to relate to. It's a technical term, but we should all be able to relate to. Um, We have a federal form of government. What it means is it's a representative form of government. Uh, If the Congress decides to ever elect a Speaker of the House, but if the Congress ever gets to governing again and they decide to raise your taxes, is that going to affect your life? Absolutely, if they lower your taxes, is that going to affect your life? See, they are your representatives and the decisions that they make affect your life. Well, what is true in terms of our government is also true in terms of theology. The scripture teaches that Adam and Eve were representatives of the human race. And when Adam fell as the representative of the race, the consequences affected us all. I say it's like mountain climbers going up the side of a mountain and they're all tethered together what happens if the first one falls? There's the potential to pull them all down as a consequence. Well, that's what the scripture teaches is that you and I were in Adam. That's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. That's why Jesus is described as the new Adam. We all die because we're all connected to Adam. We're all in Adam. Now somebody might say, well that just doesn't seem fair to me that Adam sins and we all pay the price. But folks, we know this from our own experience. The decisions that your parents make inevitably affect you, do they not? Of course they do. If a mother is a drug user, Can her child, her unborn child, the child she's bearing in her womb when that child is born, will that child have difficulties, problems as a consequence of the mother's decisions? Absolutely. So we need to understand that when we talk about federal theology, we talk about the fall of man, we talk about the fall of Adam and it affecting us, we understand that that's the way things work. Here's something else. We tend to think that we would have done better than Adam. Let's be honest, that's what we think. Well, you know, Adam really messed it up, but I wouldn't have done that. I want you to understand something. Adam was the first man. I don't know what he looked like, but I know this, that he was closer to God than any of us are. He was the only person ever created in an unfallen state. If he fell, I can guarantee you the rest of us would have done worse. So one of the things that the Bible teaches is that because Adam fell, we are all fallen. That's why you've heard me say we are all OS positive, original sin positive. This is why David, in Psalm 51, when he was confessing his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba says, in my mother's womb, before I was born, I was a sinner. It's also the first reason when a child is able to speak, the first word they learn is no. St. Augustine once said, the innocence of children has nothing to do with the smallness of their, or it has nothing to do with the purity of their spirit. He said it has everything to do with the smallness of their stature. So we are all born O-S positive. And it just means that the older we get, the more opportunities that we have to let our true nature show. So we are all fallen. We are all sinners because we are all in Adam. What else does the scripture teach us? If we're living under the word of God, that the wages of sin are what? Death. Death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no not one. The wages of sin is death, and it's not just a physical death. You'll recall that back in Genesis, God said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. Well, they ate of it, but they didn't die that day, did they? Well, not physically, but they certainly died spiritually. As human beings, you and I are made in the image of God. God is three persons one God, trinity and unity, unity and trinity. There is a sense in which you and I are one person, but we're made up of three parts. We're made up of our body, our soul, and our spirit. For our purposes here today, the body is that which you can see and touch, the physical. The soul is that which has moral reasoning that can determine right from wrong, and the spirit is that part of us that is capable of having a relationship with God. His spirit speaks to our spirit. And on the day that Adam ate from that tree, he began to die in all three ways. First of all, he died spiritually. His relationship with God was severed. We're told that God used to commune with Adam in the cool of the day. But when God came looking for Adam on this particular occasion, and of course this is metaphorical language, but as God came looking for Adam on that particular day, what had God, what had Adam done? He had hid himself in the trees of the garden. In other words, the communion that he had experienced with God was broken and that's why the first question god asks him is adam where are you what's happened to the relationship second thing that happens is that the man and the woman begin to die morally adam what is it that you have done the woman you gave me the blame game a failure to take responsibility for our own actions we want to shift the blame to somebody else and ultimately they would die physically Every single one of us. Some of us are gonna live long lives, some of us are gonna live relatively short lives, but none of us is getting out of here alive. So we all die, that is our state. And what Paul is concerned with here in Romans chapter nine is the spiritual state. We may be physically alive, but spiritually, he says, we are dead. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter, Now, you've heard me harp on this passage many times, but it is so important. You'll never understand election and what Paul is trying to teach us in Romans chapter nine unless you understand what he's teaching us in Ephesians chapter two, where he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind so that we were by nature children of wrath. Paul says that is our spiritual condition because we're all OS positive, because we're all fallen in Adam, we are all sinners, and sooner or later it begins to manifest itself in our life, we're all infected with the disease and eventually the symptoms become clear and we've all got it. And he says the situation is not that we are merely sick, he says we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. In other words, we come out of the womb not having a relationship with God. We come out of the womb, we come into this world, and we do not have a relationship with God. We are creatures of God, we are made in God's image, but we don't have a relationship with God. Not a personal relationship, not an intimate relationship, because that was severed. And that's why in Romans chapter three, Paul says, there is no one who is righteous. There's no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. The reason why there's no one who understands, the reason why there's no one who seeks God is because we're all what? Dead. You can't seek God. You can't understand when you're dead. That is the human condition. That is our natural state. And our only hope is if God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is what? Well, Paul goes on to say it in Ephesians chapter two, but God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, not because of anything we'd done, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says it again in verse nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's our condition. And apart from the grace, the mercy of God, there's nothing that we can do about it because we're spiritually dead. Now this is where things begin to intersect with the doctrine of election. The question becomes, is God fair? Well, let's look at it, not from the human perspective, but let's look at it from God's perspective. We all agree all have sinned? Anybody out there never sinned? All have sinned? All have fallen short of the glory of God? As a consequence of that, we are all under what? Wrath, we are all under judgment. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. So if we're all sinners, and the wages of sin is death, what do we all deserve? Death. Death. Now notice I say, that's what we all deserve. That's justice. Getting what you deserve is justice. But God, Paul says, who is rich in mercy, decided to raise some. He's under no obligation to do so. He chooses to do so. If nobody was saved, you understand, we would all get exactly what we deserve. I think that's so important to understand. In this whole scheme of election, You understand nobody gets injustice. You're either going to get what you deserve and you're a sinner. So you're going to get the consequence of sin, which is death. Or God is going to save you by his grace. You can't save yourself because you're dead. He's going to raise you, which is mercy. And it's not on the basis of anything that you've done. You're dead because of what you've done. But God, who is rich in mercy, decides to save some. That's what Paul is saying. And you can't understand that unless you understand your spiritual condition. Now, this is the teaching of Scripture. That's why we started with the Scripture. This is what Paul is teaching. It's unequivocal. And it's not just Paul. Jesus said to the disciples, I chose you. You did not choose me. Why? Because they would have never chosen him. He chose them. Now, that, of course, raises a very serious question. It's what I call the more troubling side of election. Why does he choose some and not choose all? If you're a believer, why did he choose you and not somebody else? See, we can't deny the fact that election is taught in the Bible. We've got to believe it because it's there, folks. But it does raise these questions. Why does God choose some and pass by others? Well, in order to find the answer to that, you have to come back next week. (laughs) Where we will talk about the doctrine of reprobation. That is the other side of election. Why is it that God chooses some and passes by others? Let me read you one final article from the Articles of Religion. And by the way, if you've never done so, I encourage you to go back and read the 39 articles. You'll find them in the back of the prayer book, whether you have a 79 prayer book or a 1928 prayer book or one of the new prayer books that we have. All three of the prayer books have the 39 articles in them. And the longest of the 39 articles which are a statement of Anglican doctrine and belief. You know, we always think, oh, predestination election, that's the Presbyterian doctrine. How many of you ever heard that? Oh, that's what the Presbyterians believe. I want you to understand that they believe it because it's taught in the Scriptures. And furthermore, while Anglicans don't talk about it a whole lot, it's here in our own formularies. You can find it... Article number 17. 39 articles, you understand, or statement of Anglican doctrine, and guess which one is the longest? Of predestination and election. Listen to what it says Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby, before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel, secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God be called according to God's purpose by his Spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling, they be justified freely, they be made sons of God by adoption, They be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full, this is interesting, of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. And as such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God." But for curious and carnal persons lacking the spirit of Christ, to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no perilous than desperation. Furthermore, we must receive God's promise in such wise, this is important, we must receive God's promise in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in the Holy Scriptures. See, that's the important part at the end. It says we understand what the doctrine of election is teaching that God by his eternal degrees before the foundation of the earth chose to save some. He's under no obligation to save anybody. If he doesn't save a single soul, we all get what we deserve. But he chooses in his mercy to save some and to bring them to life and to salvation and into the likeness of Christ. And he said that is a pure, sweet, and unspeakable comfort is what the article says. He said, but it goes on to talk about those who are passed over, those who are not chosen. And it talks about their fate. Now you say again, I don't like this. I don't want to think about this. I don't want to talk about that part of it. But you'll notice the article says... We must receive God's promises in such wise because they are set forth to us in Holy Scripture. We've got to wrestle through these issues. We've got to understand that on the one hand, God is righteous, God is holy, but He's also merciful and gracious. And yet we have to understand that in His mercy, in His grace, and in His justice, He does act in a sovereign way to save some and to pass by others. How do you make sense of that? Well, let's come back next week and see if we can. But what I want you to understand is we can't avoid this. We can't ignore this. It is God's teaching, and we live under that word. Even the things we don't understand, like an aspirin, we swallow them whole, trusting that they will work to our benefit and our salvation. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of things that we cannot understand, and it's fine to ask questions, but as we're going to see next week, it's fine to ask questions, it's fine to have confusion and and, and to seek enlightenment, but what we cannot do is accuse you of somehow being unjust. You are the Lord of the universe. And the Lord of the universe will always do what is right, even if we cannot understand it from a human perspective. So grant us the grace to receive your word, a divine revelation to us, to receive it, to live under its authority, and to trust that it will work its power in our lives to make us evermore into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you.